Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. You know, it dawned on me uh, here recently. I've been preaching since 1989. And uh, to my knowledge, I have never taken a congregation through the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end. Uh, we've been all over in the Sermon on the Mount looking at different parts of it, but uh, we've never gone through it from beginning to end. And so over the next uh, number of weeks, I would like us to do that. And beginning today, uh, looking at verse 3, the poverty that we must all share. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? And what I'd like us to do is actually back up to chapter 4 and pick up reading there in verse 23 and then reading down through verse 3 of our text. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus' compassion on the multitudes, and Lord, for his teaching. We know at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority and not simply as the scribes and the Pharisees. And Lord, we are particularly grateful for the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for us. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Savior. Lord, without his empowerment, without your Spirit, there is no way we could live by the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Give us courage and boldness in these days that we might indeed be a different sort of people. The people you've called us to be in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Beatitudes fall within what is referred to, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known teaching of Jesus, but also perhaps the least understood and tragically the least obeyed. Now, I could spend all of today doing nothing more than having us look at all the different ways that the Sermon on the Mount has been interpreted. Not sure what the benefit uh, to you that would be, but if you're interested in that, I'd simply refer you to somebody like D.A. Carson in, in, uh, in the volume of the Expositor's commentary on Matthew that D.A. Carson has written. Uh, 
Now, let me, let me mention just three or four of those ways, though, because you've probably heard of them. And I think it is important to understand some of the ways it has been interpreted and how probably we should interpret it. Most of these ways fall short. First of all would be the classic Lutheran interpretation, which says that the Sermon on the Mount presents an impossible legal ethic And being impossible to live by is intended to drive one to grace. From law to grace. Now that sounds good on the surface and certainly is true to a a degree. But it relegates the sermon only to the impossible. Hardly I think what Jesus would have intended. The second inadequate interpretation would be classic dispensational interpretation that says the Sermon on the Mount is only meant to apply to the future millennial age. In other words, it's not for now. It's for that special thousand year period. But as D.A. Carson points out, it's not likely that the millennial age characterized by peace And the lion laying down with the lamb would need something like face slapping to be regulated. Plus that interpretation places a time out on the sermon's significance for today. And assigns it to an entirely different period of time. And one has to struggle to see why Jesus in beginning his public ministry would have chosen to start with a message that had no application whatsoever to those who heard it. Another way is what liberalism has favored. Liberalism has often discounted man's need of radical redemption and spiritual rebirth and has only looked at the life of Jesus mainly in terms of that life providing us an example to follow. And so it has said that the sermon simply presents an ethic to live by in order to make it to heaven. And then I think of the Mennonites and the Anabaptists early on who used the Sermon on the Mount to preach passivism under all and every circumstance, denying that there's ever a case for just war, anything of that nature. And ignoring other passages of Scripture that have to do with that. So all of those are wonder, are, are woefully inadequate ways of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. As Matthean scholar R.T. France says, it is nothing short of a message of discipleship. A radical call to discipleship. It is not a code of ethics for society at large. Indeed, society at large would not even submit to to its demands. It's for those who name the name of Jesus Christ and follow Him as Lord. It's not a way to be redeemed, but it is the way that those who are redeemed are to conduct their lives. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, what we have here in each individual case in the Beatitudes is not a description of a natural temper. It is rather a disposition that is produced by grace. 
Now, in this sense, you could compare the Beatitudes in some ways to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is to be seen in the lives of those who are the redeemed. Only made possible because they are redeemed. As John R. W. Stott writes, it's the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it's his description of what he wanted his disciples to be and to do. You know, in every generation it seems like there are those who are looking for something different. I'm reminded of those in the 60s who were looking for a counterculture. Uh, they wanted peace and love. Some joined the Jesus movement because they looked at the church and, and they didn't see enough of the life of Jesus in the church. They wanted more of a Christian counterculture. But the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that we as the followers of Christ who make up the church of the redeemed, folks, we are to be that. Christian counterculture. We are to be different. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so as Stott says, the worst thing, the worst indictment that could ever happen on your life or my life is that if somebody in the world looked at your life and they came up with the verdict, they said, why, you know what? You don't look any different than we do. You're just like us. That'd be a scathing indictment. Sermon on the Mount shows how new creations in Christ are to live. The Bible says we are strangers and pilgrims passing through. I think of, of Peter's words. In 1 Peter 2 he said, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're to be a holy people, set apart. We're to be different. Folks, that's what the Sermon on the Mount addresses. It shows us the repentance and the righteousness and the holiness that belongs to those who are members of the kingdom of God. Now I want you to notice that it exposes a righteousness that is to go beyond merely the code of religion. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Man, what a shocking statement that would have been at the time. Now as we transition into today's message, it's interesting as we get into this sermon, the first thing Jesus addresses is what is called the Beatitudes. What he's talking about is issues of the heart. 
who we've got to be in, in our heart before we can do anything that would be pleasing or glorifying to God. The Beatitudes deal with our heart condition. Now what's clear about the Beatitudes is they don't describe eight different groups of people as though some of us are to be pure in heart and we have those in our group. Others are to be peacemakers and they have those in their group and so forth and so on. No, that's not what it's saying at all. Rather, every disciple of Jesus is to display all eight of these Beatitudes. They represent what every believer should be. Now one final comment to introduce the Beatitudes. You'll notice how different the Beatitudes are from the world standards. Folks, if they were written from the world standards, what might the Beatitudes say? The first one might be what? Blessed are the rich because they have it all. Blessed are the powerful because everybody else will have to bow down to them and submit to them. Blessed are those who are proud and arrogant. Blessed are those who fight for the good things in life for they shall get them. That's how the world would write them. But as one commentator has said, it's almost like Jesus has gone into the great display window of life and changed all the price tags. He's turned upside down our way of thinking. Now, as we look at the first beatitude, I want you to notice, first of all, Jesus wants us to be blessed the right way. Circle that word that's used right at the beginning of each beatitude, blessed. Blessed. And I want us to understand the meaning of that word, makarios. He says it not just one, but he says it eight times. It must be important. We're not supposed to miss it. The interesting background of that word, the pagan Greeks associated this word with their pagan gods. They felt like their gods were makarios. They had it made. If anyone ought to be happy and blessed, it ought to be the gods, they said. They spoke of their gods as being blessed. Now, the people Jesus spoke to in the Sermon on the Mount would have been aware of that pagan belief of their neighbors. But Jesus took that word and he applied it to his own people. He's essentially saying, it is you. It is those who are my followers. It is those who are my disciples that are really the ones that are makarios. Now, blessed living is what Jesus has in mind for his children. You and I tend to live at the level of mediocrity. Did Jesus say though, I've come that you might have mediocrity in life? Is that what Jesus said? No, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came to give us life on a higher plane than most of us have even realized or dreamed of. 
Now the world chases after makarias. We want the most out of life. Trouble is, we don't know how to achieve it. You know who we're like? We're like the rich man in the, in the parable of the rich farmer there in Luke chapter 12. He had this big bumper crop and he said, whoa, look at me. I'm blessed. I've got it made. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger and better ones and I'll fill them with all of my goods and I'll say to myself, soul, you've got it made. Sit back and relax and take it easy. Just eat, drink and be merry. You're mockerias, you're blessed. He thought blessing came through the abundance of things. But you know what? That never brings about happiness, does it? It never brings about blessedness, true blessedness. I don't know if you read it or not. That study several years back on those who won the lottery. Anybody in here ever won the lottery? You're not going to admit it though, are you? Not in a Baptist church. Heard about the preacher up north that preached against it until his wife won it. Supposedly a true story, I'm sorry. But anyway, uh, you may have heard about those who, who were interviewed some years back who won the lottery. And you know what they found almost in every single case? Almost without exception. It had ruined their lives. Almost all of them had gone through family turmoil and marital turmoil and divorce. All their friends and, and extended family members had turned against them because they, they wanted what the lottery winners had won and, and, and felt like they should have been given more. And it, it was a, just, just a string of, of pain and heartache that they had all gone through. Some of them said, I even wish I'd have never won that lottery. Money didn't bring about Macarius. In order to have this blessedness to life, Jesus' point is we need to follow Him and follow Him the right way. Following Him involves the, the mindset and the attitudes that He sets forth in these eight Beatitudes. Now folks, unless we understand and live out these Beatitudes, we're not going to enjoy life to the fullest. Jesus wants us to live lives of blessing. He wants more for your life than you want for your life. He wants more for your kids than you want for your kids, if you can believe that. Now, let's continue to try to understand the word a little bit more. Some translations, in fact, the one you're reading right now, might say happy. And I'm not going to dismiss that translation uh, because through obeying our Creator, we, we are happy. We will be happy. It's not a terrible translation, but it can be misleading. You see, blessedness is not the same thing as happy. Happy comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word hap, which means chance, as in happenstance or whatever happens. Happiness, in other words, is circumstantial. It, base, it changes based on our circumstances. It's temporary. It's insecure. 
But what Jesus is talking about is not temporary. It's not changing. It's not insecure. He's talking about something that, that never changes. He's not speaking of something that is a subjective reality, but rather an objective reality. He's talking about a peace and a well-being down deep in your soul that transcends anything that you might be going through at the moment. Have you experienced that? Other places in the Bible refer to it as that peace that passes all understanding. You can be in the midst of a trial. You can be in the midst of a storm. And down deep inside you have that peace and joy down inside of you deep that nothing in this world can take away. Folks, that's what he's talking about here. Now with that said, let's get into this first one. I want you to see that blessedness begins with spiritual poverty. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to understand that word too. Potokos is the word for poverty there. Potokos is from a verb meaning to shrink or cower or cringe as beggars oftentimes did in that day. Now classical Greek used the word to refer to a person reduced to total complete destruction who would just crouch in a corner with nothing and there beg. It didn't mean simply being poor but it meant a begging type poor. Like the beggar that was like Lazarus there in Luke 16. The beggar laid at the rich man's gate. And, and he would have loved nothing more than just to get some crumbs off of that guy's table because he had nothing. That's the word here. You see, there was another word for poverty that was penikros. And it was used of that widow that, that Jesus, she, he watched her go into the temple and out of her poverty she gave. And, and Jesus said she put in an offering that day that was more than everybody else that he saw put in an offering that day. Because he said she gave out of her poverty. But she still had something to give. The word being used here in verse 3 is that you have nothing to give. Absolutely nothing. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are that way in spirit. Folks, poor in spirit has nothing to do with physical poverty. You can be rich by the world standards and you can be poor in spirit. You can be poor by the world's standards and not be poor in spirit. He's not, he's not advocating here some type of physical poverty that we all go out and, and, and starve to death and live in the slums and have absolutely nothing of, of this world's goods. That's not, even, that's not what he's talking about at all. number of years ago in one of our Southern Baptist Missions magazines, there was an article about that the picture showed this dump outside of the resort areas in Jamaica. And go down the road about a mile and go, in, go into the jungle or woods or whatever there and can find abject poverty. In there. And it was interviewing people who were families who were searching through the garbage dump. 
looking for food. They interviewed one poor lady who pulled a rotten chicken out of the pile of garbage. And it was already beginning to smell and it was covered with maggots. And she was excited. She said, my family is going to have meat tonight. A rare privilege. Folks, there's nothing blessed about that kind of poverty. That's not what Jesus is addressing here at all. To be poor in spirit is to be poor in the inner man. It is a recognition of our need of God and a recognition of our need of the grace of God. The New English Bible, the NEB translates it, How blessed are those who know their need of God. That gets at the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. We come to the point of recognizing that apart from the grace of God, we are in deep, deep trouble. True happiness and blessedness and peace with God comes only through a poverty of one's soul. But what does that mean exactly? That means you and I have to come to the end of ourselves. Peace with God is not a matter of finding yourself. What's everybody say in the world? I, I need to go out and find myself. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I just need to go out and find myself. No. Jesus says you need to come to the end of yourself and it's God that you need to find. That's where peace with God and contentment comes from. Only when we come to the end of ourselves and we find God, will God then show us our true purpose and, and joy and blessedness in life. Jesus said, blessed are those who are uh, patokos in spirit, absolutely destitute in spirit, who come to the end of themselves. In other words, you're bankrupt before holy God. We've got a hymn we sing about that, don't we? There's a hymn that says, "All uh, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. How do some people want to sing that song? Jesus paid in part, some to him I owe. But that's not right. It's not some to me I owe and some to him I owe. But rather it's all to him I owe. It's like some people have these little checklists or these little treasure chest in their imaginations that they run over to and, and they open up in their mind and, and they say, okay, there's the Ten Commandments. And when I look at the Ten Commandments... I've kept 60% of them, they would say. So they pull that out of their treasure chest. God, look at me. I've kept 60% of the Ten Commandments. Pretty good. What's the Bible say? You break one of God's commands, you're guilty of sinning against the whole. Some people, though, they, they have this checklist mentality. I, I've kept 60% of them or 90% of them or whatever it might be. Somebody else says, you know what? I've tithed all my life. And should believers tithe? Sure. Bible talks about that. 
But somebody says, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty good. You know what? I, I've given a tithe of my income all of my life, preacher. I've never missed it one week or one month. Pretty good about myself. I feel pretty good about myself. Somebody else pulls out a tre- that and they go over to their little imaginary treasure box and, and they pull out comparison with other people. Oh, there's Deacon Joe in the church over there. You know what? I know how Deacon Joe lives. He's in, he lives in my neighborhood. Man, if he's going to make it to heaven, surely I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm at least as good as Deacon Joe and probably a whole lot better. And we compare ourselves to others instead of comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ. You know what spiritual bankruptcy is though? It's when you run over to that treasure chest and you open it up and you look to see what is inside and it is absolutely empty. There's nothing in it that you can pull out and say, God, look at me in this regard. There's nothing And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And folks, that is so contrary to human nature. What he's talking about here is the opposite of our sinful human nature that wants to talk about how proud we are, whatever we've done or whatever we we have. And Jesus is talking about the exact opposite here. What a blessing to hear Thursday Kim McNeil's testimony about her dad. Some of you got word, Kim and Larry McNeil, her dad, 87 years of age, passed away this past week over at Carillon in in Harrisburg. We were talking that afternoon about his Christian faith and she said, Dad was in church all of his life and lived a good and a decent life. But they moved here and they started going to different churches where the gospel was being preached. And she said at age 80, Dad told Mom, Honey, I've been in church all my life, but I've never heard what I'm hearing now I've never heard the Bible being preached I've never heard the gospel I've never heard about a relationship with Jesus and about the need of salvation and my own personal sin he said honey I've never been saved and at age 80 there in their kitchen his wife led him to Christ folks that's the perfect illustration about what Jesus is talking about here. And you know, Paul discovered that same thing, didn't he, there in Philippians, Philippians 3. He said, if there are those who want to talk about how proud they can be in their accomplishments, Paul said, you know what, I can pull out a pretty impressive resume. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. I was blameless in keeping the law, but whatever was gained to me, I now count as but rubbish and loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That's the poverty, the verse 3, is speaking of here. A spiritual poverty of soul that before a holy God, you and I, apart from Jesus Christ, would be in big time trouble. Why, why verse 3 is the first beatitude? Why? 
Why didn't they come second? Or why didn't they come fifth? Or why didn't they come last? Because I tell you what, until you have experienced being poor in spirit, what Jesus is talking about here, you've never been born again. You can't go further in the Sermon on the Mount until you address verse 3 of chapter 5. I think that's why it's first. Third thing I want you to see here is spiritual poverty is essential to see in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When you're poor in spirit, you mourn over your sin. That's going to be the next beatitude. When you mourn over your sin and repentance, you hunger and thirst after the righteousness that only God can give you in Christ. The parable about the Pharisee and the publican illustrates that. Pharisee said, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. I do this, I do this, I do that. The publican wouldn't even lift his eyes toward God and, and beat on his breast and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, you got to deny yourself. you got to pick up your cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. Until we do that, we don't belong to him. You say, preacher, you're preaching to the wrong crowd, though. You're preaching to the church crowd. You're preaching to the choir. It's the world that needs to hear that. You sure about that? In Jesus' day, it was the choir who needed to hear that. It was the leaders who needed to hear that. In fact, Jesus told them on one occasion... The publicans and the prostitutes are getting into heaven ahead of you. It's religious people who sometimes feel like they can put God in debt to them. Folks, we will never appreciate what Christ has really accomplished for us on the cross until we really understand that without Christ dying in my place and your place on the cross, without Him being the substitute for my sin and your sin, I would spend an eternity in hell separated from God. Without Jesus Christ, the best 15 minutes I've ever lived in my entire life would not get me into heaven. We need to see how utterly helpless and poverty stricken we are in ourselves so that we can see how utterly rich we are in Jesus Christ. Christ is our life. Without Him, we're nothing. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can, do, you can do nothing apart from me. Jesus didn't say apart from me, you're pretty good. You can do a few things. No, He says you can do nothing. You say, well, you sure about that? I can go home and cook lunch tomorrow not not on Sunday but I can cut my grass I, there, there's there's some things I can do apart from Christ what he's talking about here is you can do absolutely nothing to win any favor before God 
to secure your own salvation. I think of the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. They said, you know what? We're rich. We don't need anything. And Jesus looked at them and said, you don't understand. You are wretched and poor and blind and naked. And that's how a lot of people are. They're in denial. They don't see the truth. Jesus is saying here in giving up our own kingdom for the sake of Christ, we inherit God's kingdom. Folks, if you haven't seen it by now, the point here that he's getting at is that we've got to abandon all human pride and all human efforts to, to save ourselves. We've got to see our spiritual poverty. We've got to see that apart from Christ, we were separated from a holy God. Augustine in his confessions makes clear that pride was his greatest barrier to receiving the gospel. He was proud of his intellect. He was proud of his wealth. He was proud of his prestige. He said until he realized that those things were less than nothing, Christ could do nothing for him. Until he realized that those things in his own account, were less than nothing. Christ could do nothing for him until he became bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. Martin Luther, that great reformer, realized that all of his sacrifice, all of his rituals, all of his self-abuse that he would try to do, he would do things to his body and things to try to make himself be able to be good enough in God's sight. He said and until he read books like book of Galatians and Romans and, and understood that the just shall live by faith and until he saw, understood what it means to be poor in spirit. He was lost until then. There's a danger to most religions. If, we're not, if we use religion in a way that the Bible doesn't use it, what do we do? We, we can develop these little checklists. I do this and I do this and I, I don't see that person over there doing that. And, and we start feeling pretty good about our own little version of our checklist. And pretty soon we say, aha, you know what? I've got it mastered. I've got it mastered. But instead, like Isaiah preached on a few weeks ago on Father's Day, when we see God in His perfect holiness and we realize how indeed poverty-stricken in spirit we are, when we compare ourselves to Him like Isaiah, what did Isaiah end up saying? Woe is me, I'm undone. Isaiah is a perfect example of verse 3 here. Somebody who reached that point of spiritual bankruptcy. And when he did, he was told, Now your sin has been cleansed and atoned for. That's what God's after. I've asked people before, people in church before, various churches, Are you saved? Have you been born again? Oh, yeah, preacher. You know what? When I was nine years old, at that last day of VBS, I got baptized. 
Well, that's great. When you're saved, you ought to be baptized. We've witnessed that this morning. But I, but I didn't ask that question. Have you ever been born again? Well, preacher baptized me. It's not what I asked. Somebody else says, I went forward that last night of revival and preacher had me sit on the front pew and fill out a commitment card. Well, that's great. Were you born again? Were you saved? Did you reach that point of being broken over your sin and spiritually bankrupt before holy God and he changed and transformed your soul from the inside out? And yeah, you do all these other things because you are changed to give witness. But have you been born again? Are you poor in spirit? Have you come to the end of your Self. That's the poverty we must all share. I want to ask you to bow in prayer with me, please. Perhaps today you need to come to the end of yourself and be saved. You may have been trying, but you don't need to try harder today. The, the, the point is not to try harder. The point is to be born again. And a man will never be born again until he sees his spiritual bankruptcy. Maybe this morning you need to humble yourself before God. You know, Christians who have, who, who have come to the Lord in spiritual bankruptcy... Later on in life, there, there can be some pride that creeps back in. Maybe that's happened in your life. And once again, you need to be reminded of what Jesus said, not only here, but in John 15. Without Him, we are nothing. Without Him, we can do nothing. Lord, I pray that every ear that I'm speaking to is somebody who has reached that point of spiritual poverty and been born again. They understand exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse 3. God, I pray for that one who still doesn't know that they've come to that point in their life Lord all I can do is speak to ears I pray that your spirit would speak to hearts in Jesus name we pray Amen